defending ourselves against sexism and racism is seen as more problematic than the person who is participating in racism and sexism. And until we turn that on its head, this problem will continue, which is why he gets away with it. And I call him Agent Orange 45. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I spoke with Shireen Mitchell. Shireen is a whole lot of things. She's a serial founder and social entrepreneur, an author and speaker, a pioneering technological woman of color, and a political, digital, and social strategist. Her nonprofit Digital Sisters was the first organization to focus on women and girls of color in tech and online access. Her recent projects include Stopping Online Violence Against Women. When we finished our interview, Shireen said that I was the first to get her whole story, from her health challenges as a young girl, to Donglegate, to her current work, trying to stop digital vote suppression. Of course, you can actually only scratch the surface of such an active person's life in an hour, but I definitely learned a lot, and she's well worth your listen. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Shireen Mitchell of Stop Online Violence Against Women. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, Shireen. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Absolutely. My name is Shireen Mitchell. I formed the first organization to get women and girls of color into online and into tech back in 1999 during the Digital Divide days. And I'm currently the founder of Stop Online Violence Against Women Incorporated. You mentioned two things, but I happen to know that your biography includes dozens of different (laughs) (laughs) places that you've worked, enterprises that you've started. So I want to kind of run through that in more detail just to get to know you. Where did you grow up, Shereen? I grew up in the projects in Harlem and the Bronx, um, New York City. Technically, I'm still a city girl, although I'm not living in a city anymore. But, uh, you know, that's the core of who I am. Did that take you to college? Yeah, I mean, when I left there, how I ended up in the D.C. area was because I came here to go to school. So, yeah, my trajectory was to to get out of the projects and to get an education and hopefully change my life's trajectory. Where did you go to school? What did you study? This is a long story. But when I came here, I went to uh, Howard University and I started out thinking I was going to study uh, pre-med and be a doctor. 
it's not where I ended up, <laughs> but it's kind of where I started. <laughs> Did you run aground in organic chemistry or what happened? <laughs> <laughs> Let me go back a little bit. I, I started coding when I was 10 and I was basically told, even though I was in accelerated programs and went off to a, a math and science high school, I was still told that I could not get a job as anything in programming or computing. So I had to get a real job and be realistic about it. What? The choice, yeah. Oh, goodness gracious, you have no idea. I actually, I used to keep my my old SAT score papers where you check off what you want to be and what you want to, what careers you want to go into. And uh-huh. I checked off computer programming. And Can I ask, out of my own curiosity, what computer did you use when you were coding when you were 10? Ah, Commodore 64. Uh-huh. See, I was an Apple II Plus person. <laughs> so, you know, I, I like to measure people up that way. <laughs> Apple II when I got to school, but Commodore 64 at home. Yeah, uh, a lot of people did. It was different because I didn't, I wasn't confined. With the Commodore 64, you, you come up with your own things and you, cre- you created your own programs. With school, it was always sort of like a... A, a moderated and regulated space. And that just wasn't my personality anyway. So you you liked being self-taught. Yes. The fun and joy of creating something basically with your mind, which is what I still do, but it's just back then was this, like the energy and this, that exhilaration when you finally get something to work the way you want it to work. Yeah. I, I remember that. And for me, it was very interesting because at the same time I was doing that, there were people still telling me I can't code because I'm a black girl in Harlem. Um, and so I would go click, 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 and the goddamn thing would tell me. <laughs> you <did it. laughs> Actually, you can code. <laughs> <laughs> so To me, it was just this ultimate remote control toy. You could tell it what to do and it would obey you if you got it right. Exactly. So... Could you tell me like one program you wrote early on that stuck in your head? Yeah. So for me, it was my databases. It was building, building out the databases. I, I can't tell you why, because maybe those were the ones that after you built it, you could add the content that you wanted to it and it would just, you know, give it back to you. Right. It yeah. was like, I, I wish I could explain that better because it's like as a kid what do you need a database for? <laughs> right? So I, for me, it was probably, you know, I would like catalog my books, you know, because I was an avid reader. It was like stuff like that. As a kid, I was one of those weird kids. And that was the whole thing was like, I had, I had a desk. I used to try to teach other kids below me. My grandmother worked at a, um, who's my second parent. I call her ma. She worked, she worked at the school down the street. And so that's where we went every day. I got all the, you know, materials I needed to, to help myself. And then like, I called myself, you know, teaching. I thought, of course, at that time, I thought I was going to be a teacher thinking I was going to teach people, you know, teach kids. And so I had like a stash of work to do and like a file cabinet and a desk. <laughs> so I was just one of those kids. It strikes me that that kind of practice in problem solving and that interest in working independently are traits that often align with entrepreneurship later on. It does. 
it also aligns with you being able to build something that no one else thinks can happen, right? Like an organization that focuses on getting girls to code, right? It yeah. comes out of that. Who told you to do that? And, the, and many times I, you know, during that early days of the battle with that organization was like people were saying, I shouldn't even be doing this. And here we are 15 years later, everyone thinks it's the coolest thing to do. Um, so, so why don't you enter Howard determined to become a computer science person, a programmer? I think for me, in the end, it was just the hobby that I loved and it was just my thing. And it, it was, I think at some point it just kind of built into, these are the things I can do that nobody knows I can do. I actually asked an ex-boyfriend not too long ago. I was like, did you know I, I was hacking and coding back then? And he said, no. And I thought about it because I was like, I don't think I really let other people know. It was something I was keeping as my own little quiet secret. Well, it wasn't always known as the skill that would attract the opposite sex. <laughs> Absolutely true. I mean, one of the, how I got started is because... Um, every day after school, I used to go to the arcade room, which is a block down the street from the school. So curfew was, you know, when it got dark. So, of course, that changes during the season. But I would always stay and play, um, beat the boys and then go home. And so my mom thought I was just being cute and hanging out with the boys. Right. <laughs> the store owner didn't want me there because I could beat the boys on a quarter and he couldn't make money. And the boys didn't want to be beat by a girl. So this that whole world was like constant, but but it was like, this is what I love. And I'm here to, you know, and we're talking the old days, right? We're talking Pac-Man, we're talking Frogger, we're talking Space Invaders, you know, those. The golden age. <laughs> so of course, my mother, who thinks I'm hanging out with boys, says, if you really do love it, I'll buy you, you know, the Atari. That's what I got, the Atari. Now, I'm still a poor kid in the project. So the fact that my mother even scraped together money to get the Atari is on itself uh, a, a feat. But she did get it. And once she got it, that was it. You know, I, you know, those early days, it's like Pong and it's not even Frogger yet. It is not the games that you think, like the, what kids have now. But if, I, if you think about it, I was a gamer even back then, right? Um, and so once she realized how much I did love it, I always go back and forth about the story because I feel like she, of course, at that point, got me the Commodore 64. Looking back at that, I realized that she took me out of that space where I was the only girl, which meant that the boys then felt like that space was theirs because there's no there's nobody else. It's just them. Um, while I'm happy, by the way, hacking alone and, and, and doing these things unchallenged and un unencumbered and bothered by them. It's a narrative about why we still have such a problem in the industry, because they do believe it's their space. And when we enter it, there's always this fight that goes on, which shouldn't be happening. I mean, decades later, I'm still having some of the same fights and still having to, you know, define what, you know, what I actually do. Why I didn't go to college thinking that partly was because the other thing that happened during that time period was, you know, I very rarely tell this story. But I was a very sick kid, and I eventually had to have a major surgery where in which they had to kill me and pray to God they could bring me back to life. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Do you want to say what, what was the illness? I've never heard of such a thing. <laughs> it, you did, and people know what it is now. But at the time, unfortunately, when you're poor – 
the family doctor that we had for so long, I was a very sick kid. I ended up being very sick. And that was one of the big things about me going back and forth to school. I love school, uh, but I w- would periodically go to school, deathly ill, high fevers, and the teachers would send me home. And my mom used to say that if I had two broken legs, I would crawl to school. Like the school was so important to me. But the illness, she finally just got sick of me being sick, is what she said. So she took me to a hospital. And the way I tell this story is, I'm sitting there and one doctor comes in and he listens to my heart and then he goes back and he listens again. Then he turns red. He goes to get another doctor to come listen to my heart. He turns white. They take my mother out and she comes in back in trying desperately not to cry in front of me where I'm basically going, okay, what is wrong with me? And they're not telling me. (laughs) They're not telling me. People know what this is called. It's basically called a murmur. And in many instances, children are born with it. And then the murmur is a hole in your heart. And generally over time, it closes. Well, the doctors were very clear with me that there was no way a doctor could listen to my heart and not hear it. It was impossible. So that meant the family doctor knew I was going to die and just didn't tell my mother. That is unacceptable. <laughs> it was no way for me to survive it. I, by 18, I was going to die with nothing done, period. What? Period. There was no if, there was no if ands, or buts about it. So she basically was like, just not telling my mom so she wouldn't have to quote unquote worry <laughs> that I was going to die. But yeah. But there was a surgery I assume that's open heart surgery to it's fix it. Op- open heart surgery. And the problem was, is that the I show my fist to people to show them, because I'm a small person and you have to think about your fist. You look at your fist, put a quarter on top of that. And that was how big my hole was. And I was a kid. So y- you can imagine how big that was for my little tiny heart. I am glad that you got it repaired. <laughs> Yes, I am too. Um, But it it was an experiment. Um, The expert at the time was 70 years old. He couldn't do it himself. I have to tell you, it took like a a year and some change for them to even be prepared to do the surgery. He had to basically talk another guy through, a younger guy through the surgery. You have to think about this. He has to talk someone through this surgery. (laughs) (laughs) While there's this huge hole, my heart stopped. (laughs) Right. You can't you basically have to, you know, stop my heart. You have to kill me for an extended period of time and pray that you can bring me back. And that was the whole thing that my mom was nervous about it. My grandmother, unfortunately, at the time said to my mom, at least we'll have her for another eight years. If we don't do it, we'll lose. Because the surgery was a guarantee of it was a 50 50. There was no guarantee. They couldn't promise. To, to bring me back, so you have to you have to understand. Uh, you're telling a family to choose life or death for their child. Which version of it? That is a lot more drama than I thought we would get into at minute fourteen here. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, if you think if you think about that and understand that about me now, like most people don't know that, then yeah. you kind of understand why I go against the grain in the world. You're in bonus time. You, yes. you're, you're in extra innings. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and why? And if I'm here, why can't I do what I, what my gifts have been given to me to do? Why would I not use them and, go, and kind of go away quietly in the, in the night? You know, it doesn't make any Well, for me, it doesn't make any sense. 
So that does certainly does not explain why you wouldn't be a programmer at Howard, though. Yeah, so I'm sorry about that. So yeah, <laughs> so so the reason was by that point, I felt like this was my thing and it was mine and I was keeping it to myself and I was going to get a career and do something else going off to school. But because I was a sick kid, I was always in the hospital. Like that yeah. surgery was only the beginning of the constant return back to the hospital because you have to understand there's a foreign object in my body and my body is rejecting it because it doesn't know why it's there. It's there to save me, right? They had to put a patch. They had to sew this patch. And so I'm I'm constantly sick. So I have to always deal with antibiotics and any surgery, any opening in my body meant that like I could get infected. So it was a trying time. So I, being in the hospital so often, saw horrible things with children. And I think that took over more than anything. I think that when I when I saw babies in cages in the hospital, one kid, one baby had all of his bones broken in a, in a car accident. And his family did not come visit him. He was pinned up and, and cast. I, I just, that part of me took over, I think, in more than anything else, even at that point of me still saying, I want to be a programmer. So I went off thinking, let me go be a better doctor than these doctors were to me and all these other kids. That's kind of what started me down going that path. And then everything starts to switch from there because I'm not happy in school and I'm fighting a, a whole different sets of fights there as well. It's a very different thing once you weave with your surroundings from a place like that where you're dealing with all this sort of turmoil throughout your life and you're watching people who don't even understand what that means. Going to Howard, I mean, it was a good thing, but it was just, it, it showed me that even people who look like me can be elite and not have the same care and concern in the world that I had. And so I, so that was kind of a fumbling moment for me. Oh, and then the other thing is like, I can't hurt kids, right? So sticking, I, I had to be a lab tech and trying to stick a child was just not like, that was pain to me. And I was like, I can't do it like that. Like, those are the things that finally was like, okay, no, you can't do this. So I eventually start going down this path of, of looking at psychology, child psychology initially. While this is happening now, I'm actually in a clique. I have a tech clique at school where I'm hanging out with now, same thing, nothing but boys. And we're hacking and I'm trying to build a BBS board system, which by the way, was not you know, thought of at that time. And we are competing and I'm still going to school. One dude didn't go to school at all. Others eventually, you know, over time went to, you know, AOL came on, on the scene, crushed my plans on building this multiple BBS board system. Two of them went to go work for AOL. They asked me to come. I said no, which is, you know, in hindsight, probably stupid. They got paid millions and and <laughs> bought their houses and I'm still sort of struggling. One of the ones who didn't go to school, he ended up being like the CTO of, of a country. These are the people who were my tech clique. And it was like, so these are my tech clique then. Who am I? <laughs> you know, the transition for me was that I was probably never, ever going to shake using it for helping people. The next thing that happens is, you know, we start having this conversation about this thing called the World Wide Web. The CTO was like, I think this is your area. You should go into it. And I was like, this is dumb. I'm not doing this. The other two are still trying to figure out how to coach me to come to work for AOL. And I'm still saying, no, I'm in school. I'm doing, I'm doing the right thing. We sort of separated a little, but then I do eventually 
start the first web management firm in existence for women of color at the time. And I don't know what I was thinking at that moment, but it was more like, oh, I can do this. You're right. Uh, You know, this is something I can do. It's something that's like a no brainer. I was already helping other people build their stuff. And we're talking, you know, old days, go for sites. So we're talking like mid 90s here. We're talking, yeah, 90s, like early 90s. So I eventually do that. While I'm doing that, of course, the same model shows up, which is it's the guys versus the one or two girls. And I started teaching classes. One of my biggest problems with the work was that people didn't understand what the web was or what I was doing. And it was in, we're talking early days where, you know, you have to do all this hand coding yourself for that. We had to go line by line with no system to tell you which one of the lines weren't working. You mean like HTML? Yeah, like HTML. Like the things that people are doing now is is in no comparison to what we were doing, right? The the building of the databases, the, you know, having to build a site from scratch. Like nobody understands what that was. Having to build, you know, um, gopher sites, uh, build, even attempting to build a BBS board. Like these are things that it, it, there was no book for any of this stuff at the time, right? We were just doing it. So what I tried to do as a promotional tool was to do these classes to teach people kind of what the web was. What happened was I went to this one place called Sister Space and Books. So I started the firm in in 97. I went to this place called Sister Space and Books trying to hold classes there. Um, And this was a bookstore basically for and about African-American women. So they were generally mostly African-American female authors. The space itself called Sister Space was for women to come together in that space. So when I decided to do that, do do these classes, one of the owners called me and she says, can men come? And I'm just like, can men come? That's an unusual question from my vantage point. And I said, of course they can. And, sh- and they were just like, there are so many men that want to come to this session. And I was like, okay, I'm fine with that. Most men did not come to that space, but all of a sudden they wanted entree to the space. The men have no problems coming to invade women's spaces. But when we show up into quote unquote their space, they have problems with us being there. When I started having those classes, these men would try to use terms. They had no idea what they were using. I would shut it down and move on. I was finally told by an owner that the women were feeling like this was not a place for them, that they were feeling like, I was talking over their heads to some extent. Someone who was not technologically savvy, she, she sat in the room one day and she said she watched me. She came, she came to me later and she said, I watched you. Those men come at you left and right and you don't even blink. You shut them down and you move on. She says, that is intimidating to the women. <laughs> and I said, what? You know, I was like, I don't understand. She says, it looks like if they ever get into the space, that this is what they would have to deal with all the time. And I, technically at that time, I wasn't thinking about it. I was like, but yeah, you will. Like, it hasn't changed. However, at the moment, I was thinking, well, we have to change that and make them feel like they have the space to be here. They have ownership on the space. They, these guys don't have um, ownership of, of the space. And so I started switching the sessions and doing men only and women only, trying to get there doing breakdowns between beginning, immediate, and advanced. And I realized that there was a problem that I probably had never witnessed myself. When I say that, I mean, I was experiencing it, but I wasn't witnessing it. It didn't register for me. 
it never registered until those moments that I was the only girl the entire time. It wasn't unusual for me to be the only girl, so it didn't feel abnormal. I didn't feel like I wasn't supposed to be there. Like I, Because of what I was doing alone all this time, I knew me and the machine were talking just fine. I didn't have that feeling until someone pulled my coat and said it. And so I said, okay, now I have to pay attention. And then I had to rethink and go back through my history to figure out, well, what was different for me? Like, what was it? What was it? Because here I am also thinking, I'm a poor girl in the projects. I had this. So that means the other poor kids had it too. So why is this different? And of course I learned, of course not. That's not true. That poor kids don't have access to this and poor kids didn't get, get the same opportunities. So that's when basically the idea for Digital Sisters came into play. Basically, the first thing we did was did a survey uh, in D.C., and asking all the quote unquote, you know, tech centers, after school programs and the like, asking basic questions about the ratios of their students, uh, the ratios of the, the, the instructors, you know, gender wise, the types of classes that they were holding. And to be honest, I got responses from people that were completely angry with me. The questions I was asking was revealing something that they hadn't thought about either, Right. Most of those programs are basically over 90% boys. Most of those programs are over 90% male instructors. The one program that I had in, engaged with was being led by a, a white man. He had been working in Southeast DC, but that program was 70% girls. So when I asked the questions with that survey, he said, come down, <laughs> come take a look and tell us what we need to do. And that was the beginning. So that one request turned into what Digital Sisters ended up being, where we were going to programs, going to after-school programs at schools, and teaching the girls to code. So was Digital Sisters, was it a nonprofit? Yeah, it was a nonprofit in 99, and it was the first to, to ever try to get women and girls of color online and into tech. Seems like that's something that's remained a passion for you. It is. It's sort of the core of who I am, right? It's like, even when I went back and forth, even when I had decided by, it was around 2009 when Black Girls Code came into an existence, I was like, I'm gonna let the young bucks do it. I'm tired. Like, I was tired of the fight. You know, as the time went on, we we weren't doing as many programs as, you know, because of the battles. I started working more on policy stuff. The easiest thing I could do when I formed Digital Sisters was teaching the girls to code. That was the easiest part of my job. It's not the girls. It's everybody else. Hmm. What drew you into the policy and political space? I wish I could say what was the first thing that did it. But um, we joined uh, as an organization, we joined uh, a group of women's organizations that would have meetings, I think mostly monthly meetings. And I started sitting down and listening to what they were working on in terms of legislation and policies. I got a better understanding of how all some of those things work. I was battling with the schools about the programs and the policies. I found out that each school had a level of autonomy that made it difficult to do our program successfully. So one school, if the we would get funded by the, um, it, it would seem like it was a public school. People didn't know it wasn't a, wasn't a oyster is, is the school. Most people didn't know it wasn't a private school. It was a public school. Parents and teachers there used to move in the area just to be able to go to that school. 
the system is not completely balanced. Um, despite it being a public school, they had resources from what was their parent council assembly outside of the school. And the parent council basically helped the school get all the resources that it needed and or added to it themselves. And once I saw that model and started to see across the city how different those models were, what, what was happening in Southeast in the public school system versus what was happening in this Northwest um, school was drastically different. And I kept trying to get to the school system to, to like look at this as an imbalance. So every principal got the choice to decide to have a tech program for their school or not, a science program for their school or not. And some teachers and some principals, unfortunately, I, I have had multiple difficult conversations. Some of the principals would be like, these kids don't deserve this. <laughs> and you're just like, why? <laughs> but when you have people in power making decisions like that, that that became clear that it was never the students. It was never the girls. It was It was bigger than that. And I started looking more at the policy side of it and trying to figure out how to make a mark to shift that. And of course, that dragged me into, you know, legislative bills. Um, it dragged me into more understanding of how the legislative part of this impacted the schools. I looked at, you know, I joined organizations that worked on collaborative aspects of impacting communities and it kept expanding. And so because it kept expanding, we did less and less of the actual hands-on program work. We would partner with other groups to bring those types of projects together. I ended up forming um, what they what, what became the digital community in, in a certain section of the city where we were bringing kids from all, all of the centers, all of the leads into one place so we can teach these kids new things. I created a game called Technodemic to teach kids the technical terms and aspects of, of, of the field. Like I just kept moving through that, thinking that the more I partnered with groups that understood the the more we can have a bigger impact on the kids in the city, the more I could find dollars from a legislative perspective that could be put into the city. It shifted my thinking about what good could come from me understanding these imbalances and how I could help affect legislative policies that would change, could change these kids' lives because it wasn't the kids. That leads eventually to me thinking, okay, I'm kind of done 2008 comes around and I am thinking I'm doing something different, getting into now the political blogosphere of the world's creating legislative and political narratives, I think in a different way, hoping to you know get people to see what the problems were in, the, in my communities, still doing work on surveys and digital divide stuff. It, you know, it's sort of changed at that point where I was thinking I was going to shift this world in a different way. And of course, got involved in what, what we know and now has become the, the man who has been in, in for eight years and then had battles with him about policies and things, you know, that I Wait, wanted. Who are you talking about here? Oh, uh, 2008, the president who, the guy who won 2008. Oh, Mr. Obama. <laughs> Mr. Obama. <laughs> Did you have anything to do with that campaign? Most of what we were doing, I don't know, we did this whole big tent thing. Everyone, I didn't work with the campaign directly. I was a part of the blogosphere that, that became the digital organizing groundswell that helped him get elected. And after that, I started training people to do digital organizing. How did you operate in that sphere? So in that sphere, I, that's when I became basically an LLC 
and 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 consult it instead of doing the work through the organization mostly. Um, I shifted away from from a lot of that at that point. Kind of went into business. And basically went into business yeah. <laughs> and the political space. <laughs> yeah. People wanted, you know, to, you know, digitize their campaign runs. And so I started doing training. Who did you end up training? Quite a few people. Somebody brought this up because some of the people I trained um, work for organizations like Move On and the like. And I thought it was very interesting because I was like, oh, these these are the people who are working on these campaigns. Uh, you know, because campaigns are, are short life cycles, but there are quite a few people who um, work for major organizations or progressive organizations now that I couldn't, I completely forgot that they were part of the original groups of uh, the, this organization is no longer around. What NOI was around next week is going to be a roots camp, you know. One of the things I used to do is go to the Roots camps and, and do training for digital organizers there. I mean, it was very interesting to uh, interesting time because once he won, everybody wanted his model. Right after he won in 08, we did a conference where we were trying to, it was called Fem 2.0. Um, I did it in conjunction with a, with a bunch of other women of color to get nonprofit women organizations in the same room with bloggers, the feminist bloggers. And believe me, it was an painful event <laughs> because getting those two groups in the same room to talk to each other was not uh, well received. Why were they incompatible? The overarching reasons was the old traditional nonprofit women's orgs felt that they had done the right things around, you know, being the first to build a website, you know, as an example, that they felt that they had more positions in, themselves in the online space. And we had um, a crew come in called Linked Influence to show them that they were wrong. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> and the goal of it was to expand their view on what could be done on any of the campaigns that they were fighting for, whether it was legislative or others. The goal was to find ways to get those who were who had already moved into the blogosphere space to collaborate with them on some issue areas. We thought we were doing something innovative, but it happened once and it didn't ever happen again because I, I can promise you that I we ruffled some feathers and it was difficult to get them to return. But what I do know is after that, almost every campaign you've seen that came from a feminist organizations was because of that conference. What I understand about you is that you've been working at this sort of intersection of tech, media, politics, policy, education, organizing. I'm probably not naming it all. How would you characterize your expertise these days? I'm glad you said that because it's an evolution, right? It's an evolution of all the places that uh, in some way I'm starting in where it hasn't been done before. I think that newness of it, um, the innovation of it is probably one of my other energy centers, right? It took me some time to process that because when you're, when you're early, people don't get it and it's an uphill battle. When I look back now at what Digital Sisters was trying to do, the sad part is many people are still doing what we did in 99. And so I said to myself, that can't be, right? Why is that? What is it about the fact that we can't build on something and keep moving? 
personally, I think it has a lot to do with people's egos and wanting to be the first, (laughs) which is really interesting. But where I am now, which got me here, is, you know, the work with, with not only we coined the term digital voter suppression, we're the first to do that. Most of that work came out of the original work, which is online harassment and violence tracking of what was happening to women and girls of color online. And so I formed Stop Alone Violence Against Women in 2013. And you have to think about that because if you look at the timeline of that, we're now in more of a digital political space. Obama wins the second time in 2012. What I saw was sort of the online version of telling Black women and girls, particularly, but women of color in general, that even the tech online space was not for them every place that they were going, it was like, you're not welcomed here. I constantly battled that. What caused you to start Stop Online Violence Against Women? What's the sort of founding story there? Uh, The founding story is Donglegate. I bet you know Gamergate. I've heard of it, yes. (laughs) Donglegate. But you don't know Donglegate, and Donglegate was first. The Uh, The difference about Donglegate is that the target was a Black woman. What happened? So what happened in Donglegate is that, again, blogosphere conversation to some extent. She had a blog and she was also a tech expert and she was at a tech conference. At this conference, which is very typical for most conferences, these men are making dongle innuendos, which is sexual innuendos. Ah, yes. I did hear about this, like a Python conference or something. It is. That's it. And she uh, wrote a post about it. And the guy who, by the way, I tell people this all the time, he has yet to be named. They gave him a pseudonym, but he then posted on Reddit, got support from people on Reddit, and they went after her. And so she got a lot of harassment. She not only a lot of harassment, death threats. She couldn't stay where she was living. She lost her job. Yikes. She was couch surfing for an extended period of time to the extent that they were putting up photos of her head on naked women's bodies. I mean, it went bad. It was bad. It kept going. It did not stop. And everyone talks about, oh, the, you know, this organized harassment that Gamergate became. And I was like, Donglegate was first. That's where it was. And nobody cared. And so it moved on to another group of people in, quote unquote, the gaming industry. And it, but it was the same thing, same models, same aspects, of which at some point I got, I got dragged into it in 2016. The key to it was trying to get people to understand at that point when I was tracking her and tracking what was happening to her, we were doing all kinds of things. We we're trying to get media attention. She had a PR firm doing pro bono work with her. And all she wanted, which is the the other key to this, was that she just wanted it to go away. She just wanted it to stop. She couldn't get another job. She wanted to get another job in the tech industry. And she was basically blackballed. For what? Speaking up about sexism in the tech industry. Uh, Seems very wrong. But that becomes the model, right? That the people speaking up about sexism and racism are the ones that are, are, are considered a threat. And these platforms don't do anything about it. So that started me down the path of watching this. I came into existence monitoring your slip of showing where we discovered, you know, there are two women that discovered this. Anissa and Shafika discovered these accounts pretending to be black women to sow uh, division. 
um, which of course leads up to what happens in 2016 with Russia, that the people on the ground who are the most vulnerable and most marginalized are the ones that are listened to the least, but the biggest targets. And that's why I formed Stop Online Violence Against Women to address that, to talk about it from a broader perspective. So again, the first thing I do is a survey. And what I do about this survey that is not being done across the board anywhere else, I only survey women of color. I do not survey white women and I do not survey white men. And what do you learn? And I learned some key things. One of the big takeaways, which I repeat all the time, is the top harassers for women of color is number one, white men, number two, white women, and number three, men from their own ethnic group. Top three. And that includes, if you're a Latina, it's a Latino man. If you're Black, it's a Black man. Until we did that survey, you would not have been able to understand that or even see that happening because when you mesh all of it together and you don't get to the bottom of it, Muslim women were harassed by Muslim men. These are the things that we discovered in the survey. And so here's the thing. Here's the kicker to all this. Here's another part of my other part of the story. After we did that survey, I tried to present that to South by Southwest. And I had brought along Brianna Wu and Arthur Chu, who I met in a couple of other settings on online harassment. And we were trying to have a broader conversation about what happens to women of color in the space and um, women in general to some extent. But the point of the panel was to discuss this. You know how South by Southwest operates. You pitch a panel, you get people to vote up the panel. So we discover that we are among of a crew of other people who submitted panels that are being harassed in, in the panel picker. Thousands of comments to basically discredit our work. Now we don't know if we should be promoting it or not, <laughs> or what to do. We get into an email exchange with staff at, at, at South by Southwest trying to address the problem, trying to figure out what to do. They had never seen anything like this before. Why we're now in 2016, we are in Gamergate world. We're also now, unbeknownst to most people, in Russiagate world, right? It is overwhelming, and we're all trying to come up with a solution. So eventually, they, they cut off the comments to stop the comments. We are in discussions with the person who's in charge of gaming uh, at South by Southwest, who knows about Gamergate and what the problems are. So they all kind of tell us that they're going to address this in the sense of getting them to stop. And so we are now telling them, this isn't just the comments. They are threatening our lives. One person, their parents' house got swatted. Every website I had was being hacked on a regular basis. And even though, and I said this to people, at some point I figure out, I lock, because I'm a digital expert, I do all the locks on the doors and somehow people are still getting in. That means it's coming from the inside the house. That means that it's those on the tech side who are helping to push these narratives who are now shutting down my sites, putting up stuff that shouldn't be there. And that's when I, the bell goes off about how bad and how deep this goes. So we are basically trying to get them to understand. And what they're saying to us, this is just a difference of opinion. We're looking at the comments. We're not seeing anything with threats. Just because they're not putting threats in public spaces doesn't mean it's not happening. We were on docs lists. We're on Reddits and others of the world. And we're trying to explain to them what's happening to us. And every day from that moment, someone's trying to hack my stuff. Every single day. There is not a morning 
that I do not wake up with someone trying to get inside my sights. So it doesn't go away. And I can always tell at some point when somebody else is being targeted that my name got thrown in a hat in some way. And it just becomes a mantra that I'm basically living through all the time. And people don't get that. It's like, it's not gone. It's just that you can't see it. So when we try to get them to respond, one of my panelists finds out on Reddit that our attackers are trying to submit a panel to South by Southwest after panel pickle is over, after everything is ended. And so he comes back to them and says, these are terrorists as far as I'm concerned. How were they able to submit a panel after the fact? What's explained to us is that at, you know, after the panel picker is over, there's a general email that goes out when people want to try to add something. Sometimes they accept other sessions. So they said to us, they knew exactly who these people were. They knew exactly what they had done and that not to worry because we know who they are. Nothing, nothing will come of it. That's what the, st- the staffer who we were constantly in contact with. I get the email because I'm the organizer of my panel about the panel being accepted. I, I look through it. They ask me if everything is the same, like this general emails that come out. And I say, yeah, I said, but there's one problem that I have. This has me under gaming. My session is about, you know, basically women of color online and harassment. And they're like, oh yeah, we meant to tell you, we want you to change it a little bit because, you know, we think we'll be stronger. I was like, what? My panel is not about gaming. They were going to not only put my panel in, the gaming section, which is different than interactive. That was week one. And normally the week I go, normally the community, I've, I'm a veteran, by the way, I'm, I'm someone who's been there at least, you know, 10 years in a row. This is my community. Most of the people who were being harassed had never even been to South by Southwest before. After that, they come to me and I say, I can't do this. So the guy is the one who's asking me, again, the lead of the gaming section. I told him, I, I have to be really honest about this. You're putting, you know, my panelists and myself in harm's way. And then they get a woman to come at me, to convince me. And I, I do the same thing. I give them details of what the panel is really about. And then the boss comes in and basically says, that if I don't do it, they can't guarantee that my panel will exist at all. And so I say again, <laughs> you know, I submitted this panel in this way alongside the other panel I submitted, which is the film industry, <laughs> getting women of color who were doing film, who I met at a conference, who were trying to do superhero films. I said, I submitted these in the same way for the same reason about elevating women of color voices. Immediately, I get a rejection from the film panel I submitted. My panel is rejected. I just, I go back and I say, this is very interesting that you rejected this panel, but I am not changing this one. So on October 19th, I discover that everybody else's panel has been accepted and submitted. Mine is not. And my attackers get a panel too. I was the only woman of color that submitted a panel. I was the only woman of color that decided to stand up for herself and, of course, her panelists, who were all people of marginalized backgrounds. And 
they removed me and allowed my attacker. And by the way, what they did was they justified it because one of the organizers of the other panel was a black man. That was their justification. So remember when I told you top harassers, white men, white women, and black men when it comes to me. So they gave one of my attackers a platform and removed my voice. The mantra was clear for me with the work that I do, which is why I won't change it. Once that happened, I knew that there was no stopping me at this point because that just blew my mind. Now, what happens is those people they let in the door come after South by Southwest. That October 19th, I went back to that staff person sending her an email, asking her about what went down and why would something like this happen to me. And I got a letter bounced back that she had left on October 19th. She saw what was coming and she left. Okay. So it was clear to me that they knew what they were doing and they decided to do it anyway. And this is why I explained to people in the industry. These are people taking action. They are making decisions against women and girls of color. So how did you respond? What happened was it, it, it became a big public to do. I, I know you saw this. This is now in 2016, where they're basically saying the tale of these two panels and, re- and, and South by Southwest decided to reject both panels and basically say this is a balance, right? Remember, my panel doesn't exist, so there's no balance. But the narrative that's being told is a narrative basically without me. It gets big media attention. Catherine Clark, who is a representative, again, because of my Hill work, who I knew, I contacted them. She was already being contacted by um, Brianna Wu. They put out a letter and I went at them and I said, look, this is what's happening. And this is what's happened to me. And so once other people got involved, they backtracked and they decided that they were going to eventually hold this online harassment summit. And they asked me to come back. And I had to deal with my security. I had to have security. I had to have hard conversations with them about them trying to bring the police in. In a very silent room after I said it, I was like, bringing the police in does not make me feel safe. It does not make any woman of color feel safe. And they all said, I've never heard that before. Texas is an open carry state. You're asking me to come. I'm coming because I'm not going to be silenced, but I need to make sure that I'm being protected. And so eventually it becomes such a madhouse that they basically isolate us. It doesn't get the attention that it should have gotten because they were so terrified of what would happen to them. And I found it very ironic. It's like when the threats are you, when you're the ones being threatened, all of a sudden you want to change the rules when all you had to do was listen to me in the first place. So after that is, is when we dig deeper into this work, of course, and being a little bit more public about it, helping other women, tracking um, the, the harassment on the platforms on Facebook, Twitter, and others. And then, of course, discovering, um, you know, what everyone else started to discover, because this is 2016 now, um, and discovering these fake accounts pretending to be us, discovering what the harassment is looking like and how that how that's changing from a political perspective. We find that as Black women are pushing out to get people out to vote, they are being targeted. We are working with women who get their accounts suspended and and hacked. You know, the platforms do very little to help them. That part has not changed. We're still working on that. 
I'm on the, the real Facebook oversight board because of that. The models that we eventually see that turn into horrible things that you and I and all have witnessed, like the situation that happened with Kenosha, the Miramar situation, you know, we're still tracking what it looks like for vulnerable people, particularly women of color in this space and doing our best to stop it. And that leads into what you're going to ask me about, which is stop digital post depression. I'm going to ask you that one question down the line. In the middle of this, which is really very nasty online violence trolling, we elect a president who really is, he is himself a practitioner of those dark arts, I think. Yes. I'm very curious about your lens on his rise to power and what he does through Twitter, et cetera. Where we are now in 2020, people now know that his rise to power came out of Project Alamo. His rise to power came out of the combination of Cambridge Analytica and Facebook having an office in Project Alamo. It came from their three-tiered voter suppression online campaigns. That's how he got there. When I talk about erasing history, that's an example. And not only is that an example, is that he did it again in 2020. And still barely what we got was uh, disclaimers on the things that he was sharing or his teams were doing. Some some ridiculous, quote-unquote, balance about political ads that impacted the people more who were trying to get out the vote. His rise to power is because people will protect people like him who's causing the harms versus protecting the people who he's harming. And fundamentally why our organization exists. Because that model is the model that these tech companies embed as a strategy. I don't think people have clarity about what you're talking about as far as three-tiered voter suppression campaign making a difference in 2016 and, and onward. What, what do you mean? People know, but they don't understand the origins, I think. When you understand the history of what Cambridge Analytica did, right, using the Facebook data to help target, when was it, October? Uh, News 4 did that expose where they showed how that data was used down to the county level and could show up to, to voters' houses. That's what they did in 2016. And no one understood the level of the detail of that data mining that was used as a weapon for voter suppression. If I understand it, they were extremely successful in getting people to not vote, particularly in in communities that support Democrats in high percentages, they demotivated them in various ways. Yeah, deterrence is what they were called. I call yeah. it voter suppression. We call yeah. it digital voter suppression, right? Yeah. The three tiers were focused on white college women, liberals in general, like they considered you know, all white liberals a target. And the only other ethnic group that they had there was African-Americans. That was their deterrence. Their goal was to find ways to deter Black people from showing up. And as you can see, and everyone can see now with 2020, why did Biden win the primaries? He lost Iowa. He lost New Hampshire. And Black women were just like, we here. We don't care. 
Y'all can choose whoever y'all want. We are choosing for us. <laughs> I still think from a political standpoint, as someone who's worked, uh, worked with people on campaigns and the like, what I discovered from 2016 to present is watching other Democratic campaigns take on what happened in 2016 as a strategy, as a political strategy. You mean copy it? Copy it. Yes. We tracked every primary and mm-hmm. we know exactly who copied the model. Yeah, I have some suspicions. Who do you think? Number one, Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. What do you think they did? And do you think that was located in the campaign or located exterior to the campaign? It was among- a combination of both. But just remember, in 2016, Russia was trying to help Bernie. Remember that over Hillary. And Bernie knew about the emails. Remember that? He got up there and says, oh, forget the emails, because he knew that strategy was working. But then he made it made it look like that he was on the side. He knew. Everyone knew by that point about what Russia had done. Right? They were all read in by that point. And he also knew that Russia was helping him. But he used, the campaign used that model. And I know that because I've talked to different campaigners who work for these different primary presidential elections. I, I listened to the teams who were working and they talked about it later, the aftermath of their digital organizing and given their stories. And I asked specific questions to have an understanding of who understood what. I think that Kamala did not understand the impact of the disinformation on her campaign that only lasted a year and didn't make it to the primaries. We track that. Of course, you know, we, we discover ADOS. I have the data now to prove that the, that the elevation of ADOS has everything to do with me discovering them. Explain. What was ADOS for people who don't know? It is a campaign um, that was focused on, quote unquote, reparations. It was called um, American Descendants of Slaves. That's their name. We discovered not only ADOS because of, again, the work of understanding what happened in 2016 and monitoring targeting campaigns because Kamala's campaign was the easiest one to to even see. Again, why? She's a black woman and we monitor that. Uh, We saw her her being uh, targeted as early as two weeks before her announcement. There was a bubble up that we could track that we knew was coming for her. Now, did we all kind of assume that she was going to run? Absolutely. But we could see the online activity around her before she made her actual announcement in January. And in doing so, we discovered several other campaigns. ADOS was just one of many. The ones that that have been in existence and still in operations are, you know, Blexit, uh, Demexit, which came down, came out later, walk away. And of course, you know, uh, Trump's whole black voices for Trump. But we were tracking all of them to see what they were doing online and how they were impacting black voters. In doing so with that, we also could see what the other primary campaigns were doing. And the ones that, in my opinion, had a, a, a what I could classify, people know this from a history lesson, that classified a Southern strategy model, which I now say what we saw was a online Southern strategy frame that several of the Democratic campaigns participated in, which for me was jaw-dropping when I finally got a better look at it. The reason is because these are the people that were supposed to be so-called wanting to engage in, in, in getting Democratic voters, but they were also participating in um, the suppression in some ways. 
they were purposely, um, in, in some instances, basically trying to diminish Black voters. I found the fact that they learned what happened in 2016, and instead of trying to elevate Black voters and trying to en- enable them to get out the vote, they were actually also working to diminish their impact. It didn't work, by the way. This this is campaigns, I assume, that felt that they had no chance with Black voters. Yes. Yes. Do you want me to name the others? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, Amy Klobuchar, who you know got out of the race, and Black women actually did a whole op-ed against Amy Klobuchar um, because of her behavior and experience with Black people. Um, she... She constantly campaigns on the middle America model. What's a middle America model? I mean, let's be honest. Almost every word you could hear from her was middle America. What model is that? I thought it had to do with Minnesota. (laughs) No, it had to do with white people. The people who have control over the electoral college. The people who get to vote as what gets one vote casted as 300 based on the model of slavery of electoral college. It's, it's what the Southerners got as the gift of losing the Civil War. Well, Electoral College goes back before that, but um, <laughs> who else did you think played those games? Pete Buttigieg. He was kind of on the other end of a lot of attacks around race, right? He played up the whole stereotypical framework that black people don't like gay people. He actually said that as if black people don't have gay people in their families. And I, I tweeted about that. I said, this whole framework is basically saying that it's, it's impossible that black people have gay people. Uh, anyone who's LB, LBD, LBD, LGBT, QIA. I always mess it up. Sugar. It's my, I, let me say it right. LGBTQIA. Yeah. And he played off of that. And and you have to think about that. When he won Iowa, he really did think he had this in the bag while still playing those those items up. And I'm not saying he didn't get harassment because that isn't the case. But, you know, the things that went out from him when he tells black voters he don't want their vote. I mean, why are you running? How much do you think the the sort of voter suppression online changed the results of the primaries and the, and the general. I I missed the part here. The reason that we understood what was happening in 2016 is because we took those same 3,500 ads that came from Facebook that the Senate and everyone else had. And we did a data visualization. We dumped it. We looked at it from a visual perspective and we discovered that there is no other group that was targeted more than black identity. And we also discovered in that which groups were outside of it. So it became clear from a strategy perspective how to look at what kind of campaigns, online campaigns people were using, right? And and where the overlaps were and where they were not. Once we could see the topics and the issues and the ways in which even the candidates themselves were speaking about about these things, it becomes clear even in their um, debates, even in the things that they push out, what their agenda is. 
and 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 they focused on doing two things either trying to bring in black voters or trying to silence them and that's why Pete ended up with so much um, attacks because of his it was you know the same thing I say to people about Bernie it's not what his team was doing it's the stuff that Bernie actually said he actually said to a black woman to her face that the reason that there are more black people in jail is because there are more black people as drug dealers. He said it. So if you have a model in your head where you're talking about white working class or, you know, cause, cause he's, he says working class, but he means white working class. If that's your model, then you have a hard time with the rest of it. The big thing that Bernie decided to do that, that harmed his campaign the most is what he did around bloody Sunday. And I tell people this because they don't get it. He literally tried on the day of Bloody Sunday to have a L.A. event with public enemy as if that was going to gain him the black arm that he needed. He was trying to divide my community by using public enemy instead of taking his butt to Bloody Sunday like he should have. It does not sound like you're a fan of that campaign. I am not. Who are you rooting for? My first was definitely Kamala. I when she dropped out, I was I was upset. Then my second was Elizabeth Warren. And then after that, I was pretty much done. <laughs> Your work in stopping online violence and vote suppression, digital vote suppression. What are the remedies in your mind? It seems so difficult to break this increasing cycle. We are now in a culture of disinformation. We're either talking about it, dealing with it, fighting it, or trying to find a way to counter it. That's where we are. And let me say something about Elizabeth Warren, which I I haven't seen even, even now with the Biden administration. She was the only one who had a disinfo uh, agenda. The only one. That's one of the main reasons why I had so much respect for her. She listened to black women. She responded to black women. That little attack, uh, planned attack that happened where uh, Yana Presley had to stand up for her. It was quite clear. She let black women take the lead when necessary. Be clear. Most of these candidates are bad at that. Um, Biden's doing a better job because he just chose a black woman as a VP. So we know (laughs) he's listening to a black woman right now. Um, But but during the primaries to watch what was happening it was very clear that the reason that we are in this culture of disinformation is because now we have more domestic actors using this tactic. What was different between 2016 and 2020 is that we didn't need Russia. We were doing it. Yuck. And what is problematic with that is the reality of the fact that this has changed politics in America forever. What do you think is the main substance of that change? What cannot be undone? I don't think we will ever see a campaign not using some form of attempting to hack their opponent or attempting to use disinformation against their opponent. In some sense, you've had disinformation from the beginning of the Republic, right? There's campaigns were notorious in the 
19th century and before for, you know, scurrilous rumors and things that were printed in the newspapers that were not true. And, but it is quite different when you can spread them digitally, when you can use bots, when you can get it around at such a rapid pace. And there's something different about the way Trump does it. It is a different order and magnitude. What are you advocating for through your couple groups that work in this area? A couple of things that we're advocating for. One is we need to inform people more about disinformation. And we're not doing that. Right now, it's a six to one ratio. People will experience six versions of disinformation before they get the facts. That ratio has to change. Until that ratio changes, we are in the culture of disinformation. The second piece of what we need to do is stop allowing the domestic actors to continue to spread the disinformation and the conspiracy theories. But we have a problem with that because we are now fighting over the concept of freedom of speech in relationship to this. That's the weapon of choice. Russia used that weapon against us. We're very open here. And we defend things on that ground, and rightly in many cases, but not when we're talking about attacks on people. No. And, and I've, I've had many debates with others who focus on freedom of speech, you know, the way in which ADL got manipulated uh, with, with, with Charlottesville, right? The right for people to be hateful, you know, it's a problem. And, and let me just be clear about that problem, because this is the part that people don't understand. People constantly use that freedom of speech will be weaponized against marginalized people. Actually, it's already being weaponized against us. Nobody's protecting us from it. When we speak up to defend ourselves, we're the ones punished. The platforms do it. Facebook will ban and suspend a black woman for saying white people before they ban and suspend a white person saying the N-word. Where's her freedom of speech? And by the way, white people is not the same thing as the N-word. It's not even a slur. So we're picking and choosing and we're denying that we're doing it. So much so that other people who hear a black person say white people thinks it's a slur. (laughs) The debates around Karen, the use of Karen, right? Who do they go after? Black people for doing it, right? It, it was like, oh, this is a slur. Karen is not a slur. It's a name. All of a sudden, that freedom is not given and granted because who is the target matters. Defending ourselves, and I'm using the word defense, defending ourselves against sexism and racism is seen as more problematic than the person who is participating in racism and sexism. And until we turn that on his head, this problem will continue, which is why he gets away with it. And I call him Agent Orange 45, (laughs) occupant of the White House. Yeah, not for much longer, I hope. Well, he's still trying to do damage. (laughs) But that level of ability to weaponize that, he was always able to do that from the times in New York, what he did to the Central Park Five. He took out an ad to get five innocent black and brown boys lynched. And the media put the ads out. He's been given permission to do so. 
So when he goes after Section 230, he's going after this because he does not believe he should be muzzled no matter what he's saying. And in my opinion, that's every white male as far as I'm concerned. It's a little broad, I think. It's true, though. (laughs) They think they can say whatever they want without consequences. Well, that's from a long history of finding that that to be true. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) What I want to do is ask you if there's a question that I failed to ask that I should have. Maybe there's an answer I didn't give. How can we solve this problem? If If we saw anything that happened in this election... Black women standing up helps us solve this problem. We need to learn how to elevate their voices and their work in the space. What we just saw that happened to Timnit with Google, who was trying to stop the way um, facial recognition was impacting marginalized communities. Um, We have a fundamental problem with this, and it comes from the tech industry as well. And the reason that we exist and the reason that we're doing what we're doing is because we are doing our best to counter that. I'm glad you're doing that. Shereen, it's been really an honor to talk to you. Uh, Is there anything else you want to say? No, I think that's it. I think I said a lot, though. (laughs) (laughs) It was very passionate, and I'm glad you got a chance. That was Shereen Mitchell. Shereen is at StopOnlineVAW.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at GreatBattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.